0: Hi, this is The Jason Hill Show, and I am Jason Hill. And if you're a fan of Jason Hill Show and you wish to donate and contribute to the show, please click on the link below and follow the instructions. President Joe Biden signed on December 13th the Respect for Marriage Act into law, assuring that marriage equality for same-sex and interracial couples will remain the law of the land, no matter what the Supreme Court Does. Now, the Supreme Court ruling on June 26, 2015, that legalized gay marriage in all 50 states was a landmark day in U.S. history. Yet I had a deep and uncomfortable moral crossroads in my life over this decision because, indeed, uh, to begin with, I've never been able to understand what there was to be proud of regarding a sexual orientation, that is, a disposition that orients one towards sexual attraction to the same sex. There is nothing to be proud about it, and I don't think there's anything really to be ashamed about the orientation itself. As I'm against and suspicious of race pride, so I am deeply suspicious of gay pride. And I'm gay, I'm Jamaican, and I am a deep conservative independent, who is committed to marital equality for gays and lesbians, people of the same sex ought to have as much of a moral and legal right as their heterosexual counterparts to marry a person of their choice with whom they think they want to spend the rest of their lives. It is a violation of individual rights for the state to discriminate against the marital choices of gays and lesbians, It thoroughly annihilates the unassailable value one has discovered, perhaps after a lifetime of searching in another person who undoubtedly contributes to the meaning and purpose of one's life. I also believe marriage between two men in our contemporary culture is a colossal waste of time, a hopeless undertaking doomed for failure. And fundamentally a naive endeavor, profoundly at odds with the hypersexual, broken, and ethically bankrupt ethos and nature of gay male culture. I do not believe this because I think homosexuality is immoral. Sexual orientation, per se, is morally neutral. One should judge ethical status according to how one functions in a relationship, rather than the sexual identity one holds. But I think that gay culture's sexual selfishness damages people. The problem is that the entire milieu in which gay men's moral and sexual socialization uh, take place is so deeply compromised, so bereft of sustainable meaning and protracted monogamous commitment, that marriage in the traditional sense, which is what I believe gay men are trying to achieve in their lives, will be impossible to realize. So the problem is that the entire milieu in which gay men's moral and sexual socialization takes place is deeply compromised, right? If it is not impossible, then marriage between two men will forever change the fundamental nature of marriage. The majority of gay men with their transparent and blatant preference for open relationships and polyamorous relationships or polyamorous dalliances will suffuse mainstream culture with Experiments in living that I think will radically alter the sexual landscape of our culture. And let us remember that 50%, 50% of all gay marriages start off as open relationships. So people for whom an open relationship would have been unthinkable will view it cavalierly as just another candidate for living a full and exciting life. The addictive partying that is plenty of sex and drug that is a constitutive feature of gay male culture will only glamorize that feature of our culture and make it an eventual norm rather than exception of mainstream life. The promiscuous sex and drug use are not experimental or exceptional or marginalized currents in gay culture at all. They are an omnipresent force in every crook cranny of the gay world. The new and disturbing posmi trend merging in gay culture needs to be nationally discussed. This culture consists in underground online sites where gay men who are HIV negative hook up with men who are not and beg to be bred or breeded. They call it by HIV positive men. And I think that this disturbing posmy trend in gay culture has to be nationally discussed. Now, a compassionate and psychologically, or a compassionate and psychological reading of this phenomenon is not hard to understand because the worst of any subculture is always an exaggerated microcosm of the pathologies of the larger culture. Largely because the former is always deprived of the material and social resources to combat the maladies of the latter. And today our culture has been described as the age of loneliness, one in which sustained intimacy and connectedness are both absent and emotional isolation, the norm for a growing majority of human beings. It is a desperate cry for intimacy and deep contact with another on the the literally deepest form, an exaggerated or an exchange of infected bodily fluids. It's almost as if the non-HIV sexual participants are rebelling against the nomenclatures of safe sex, of protected sex. And the question one is expected to ask one's potential partners before engaging in sex. That is, are you clean? Not only technology, but language itself is driving isolation and non-connectedness. So I don't think that mere sex can satisfy. And until gay men forge a new moral contract, a new moral contract that combats their disproportionate drug use, their sexual promiscuity, there's sexually transmitted diseases, depression, suicides, then gay culture will die, and it probably should die because it is bankrupt, and it will die not by one apocalyptic blow, but rather by bleeding to death upon thousands of tiny scratches. And This death is predicated on a lethal pathological form of individualism that affects gay men more than any other group. It's the idea that I am whole, already whole, I am complete. I only need someone to compliment me. But I think that happy, self-confident, and complete people are not maniacally driven to pursue drug-infested bathhouses and underground parties replete with drugs. This lie we tell ourselves drives us to seek validation, completion, and wholeness in very unhealthy ways. And these drug Infested bathhouses and underground parties that are heartbreakingly meant to fulfill an obvious emptiness at the epicenter of such individual souls need to be discussed. An important part of who we are and who we shall become is predicated on our shared and created experiences with each other. Our age of loneliness is driven by this illusion of completion, but human identity is not only forged in the crucibles of sexual intercourse, but also via a process of creative social intercourse in which our shared vulnerabilities and need for sustained intimacy commit us to reciprocal acts of nurturance in a sustained and authentic manner. Now, marriage is an institution, or let me put it this way, marriage as an institution Means the world to me. And not just because I come from a broken home in which my parents divorced when I was around seven years old. More importantly, I believe in the moral meaning of marriage. Marriage is above all the pursuit of certain values that you achieve through the virtues of your character. The marriage is above all the pursuit of certain values, also the highest values one can aspire to such as love, friendship, commitment, raising a family, mutual responsibility, and deep companionship. Given the centrality then of valued persons in our lives, and given the psychological need to have them esteemed in the public sphere, we understand marriage as, among other things, an insignia of public approval of two people's choices. The legal imprimatur of the state makes this union sacred. Marriage, in other words, helps to make people whole. Marriage is beyond mere legality. It is a nucleus in which regeneration, social validation, and affirmation take place. And those who would seek the deny nice same-sex couples, this derivative right would exclude gays from being formal co-constructors of the very society of which they are a part and would decouple them from the highest value, they hold that, on several accounts, is a constitutive feature of their personal and moral identities. The worst members within a group should never be used as a normative standard of value by which to praise and judge the merit of that group's other majority-forming members. Legalizing gay marriage involves values respected in heterosexual relationships because heterosexuals are considered to possess a higher share in humanity than gays. Now, whether this is openly admitted or not by those who oppose gay marriage is irrelevant. It is the logical terminus of a thought process that starts with arbitrary reasons for why two people of the same sex cannot get married. Prisoners, the mentally and physically handicapped, rapists, those who fail to care for their children, those unable to procreate, serial killers, the elderly, the asocial, the non-communicative, and those who participate in traditions of wife-beating, philandering, and wife-desertion, are all accorded the right to marry. But at least some persons in this list are regarded as, at best, psychological aberrations or incidental to the larger heterosexual marrying population and at worst, social ballasts, who, if we did not live in a civilized society, would be a job for the sanitation department to dispose of. The worst members within a group should never be used as a normative standard of value by which to appraise the judge, by which to, I should say, appraise and judge the merit of that group's other majority-forming members. Short of a moral and radical revolution in gay culture, the milieu in which most gay men's sexual and socialization takes place, the moral gay minority will have its hopes and aspirations for traditional marriage, obliterated by larger cultural forces within contemporary nihilistic gay culture. Such a culture makes it very difficult to promote the moral meaning of marriage in the same way that a principled individualist would have any chance of success at promoting racial harmony and the respect of intermarriage or interracial marriage in a segregated and racist society saturated with miscegenation laws. For homosexual relationships, the meaning of committed or monogamous means, for the most part, something radically different than in heterosexual marriage. A few constitutive features of gay culture Are endemic to and formative of the identities of the majority of men who belong to it and who thus suffuse it with its mores, norms, and ethos. First, the insatiable and voracious nature, or the voracious sexual promiscuity that functions not as rites of passage, but really as ongoing and recreational activity that does not cease with marriage or long term partnership and that increase with age. For homosexual relationships, the meaning of committed or monogamous means for the most part something radically different than heterosexual marriage. In all the studies I looked at, 43% of all gay men in Western democracies claimed to have had more than 500 partners in their lifetime and 28% claimed more than 1,000. In the age of grinder, I think it's about 2,000 per partners in one's lifetime. The sexual peccadillos of such men did not decrease markedly after marriage for the simple reason, as I said, that 50% of all gay marriages in the United States begin as open relationships. We're going to take a short break, and when we come back, we'll continue our discussion. This is Jason Hill, and you're listening to The Jason Hill Show. Welcome back to the show. I'm Jason Hill, and this is The Jason Hill Show. As a friend said to me at dinner party a few months ago, upon my playful admonition, after years of, or a few months after dating, after I had broken up with my long-term partner of 14 years, This friend playfully said, don't worry, my husband and I are in a gay relationship, which means we play on the side with other men. And that is a new norm, I asked. It's always been that way and should be, he said, and then proceeded to give me a good-natured lesson in how to proceed if I wanted to succeed at another long-term relationship. Now, I want to say that biology protects heterosexuals, but not gay men. All right? Sexual promiscuity among gay men is an addiction that has little to do with conquering prey and liking the chase. Now, at some point in a heterosexual man's life, mindless and maniacal cruising for sex with women ceases and he begins, like women, the biological search for an ideal soulmate who will be a suitable mother to his future children. I think this biological imperative Pushes the sex towards each other and tempers the maniacal drive for sex. The unconscious criteria that evaluate a woman's allure have much to do with her fitness for procreation. It has much to do with that fitness. The criteria for the majority of men who do not elect to be vocational bachelors transcend buttocks, breasts, and hips. And they include a swath of characteristics that include the capacity for fidelity, loyalty, cooperativeness, trustworthiness, and sexual monogamy. The same criteria hold for heterosexual women appraising their their potential mates. Each wants not just hot sex and lasting passion, but more importantly, a mate who will sire healthy children, be a provider, a protector, and leave a legacy for the family. I think this biological imperative pushes the sexes towards each other and tempers, at least for a while, the maniacal drive to seek anonymous and wide-ranging pleasures outside the hearth. I don't think that marriage will fix sexual addictions. The unconscious political and somewhat empathic motivations and progressive heterosexuals who support gay marriages stem from, I believe, a drive to legitimize, tame, and conquer the gay sexual imagination. And I say to such progressives, "Just terminate the fantasy." That most gay men are sexual addicts is reason enough to consider whether an overcoating of legalized gay marriage can ameliorate the underlying causal contributors. Most gay men, by nature of their sexual socialization within gay culture, or are moral secessionists, they're outlaws. Who will never capitulate to their own fantasies of being normal and just like everybody else. Nor will they fulfill the hypocritical and unrealistic expectations of progressives who think they can, through institutional resocialization via traditional marriage, mull gay men into a model of social and behavioral predictability. The hypersexualized cultural milieu in which sexual socialization take place, takes place for gay men is conducive to the unmistakable behavior most gay men commit or are prone to commit, sexual addiction. That most gay men are sexual addicts is reason enough to pause and consider whether a palliative overcoating of legalized gay marriage can ameliorate the underlying causal contributors to this unsustainable mode of being in the world. For the progressive scribal class, gay marriage is not the granting of a constitutional human right, which, which I believe it is, but more, it is a sacred experiment that reinforces the nature of their moral identities. They are fighting for a worthy cause, these progressives, on two fronts. One is an unassailable legal and moral battle. The other is a serious experiment to broker and remedy. The nihilistic orientation of gay culture and the nihilistic sensibilities of the men who are denizens of those worlds. I think gay culture aims to destroy marriage. While most gay men are like everyone else, good people with faults who are no more or no less prone to do good or bad things than the general heterosexual population, they do face an uphill battle that their heterosexual pairs do not. The nihilistic nature of gay culture that caters Predominantly to range of momentary fulfillment and trivializes the stupendous commitment required to hold one's life in full consciousness at all times. Its fetishization of sexual plain fantasy hijacks gay men's moral sensibilities to such a profound extent that it makes them functional nihilists of a particular type. Ones outside of the militant activists of, let's say, ACT UP who assault the heteronormative identity of Western civilization. Now, I place the destruction of cultural or civilizational heteronormativity as a constitutive feature of gay male culture and of the men who are sexually and ethically socialized within its matrices. Heteronormativity is the concept that human beings fall into distinct and complementary genders, man and woman, with natural roles in their respective lives. It postulates that heterosexuality has to be the norm and that sexual and marital relations are most or only fitting between people of opposite sexes. For some critics, heteronormativity creates a, quote, sex hierarchy that grades sexual practices from morally good to bad sex. Now, writing as a uh, conservative, independent, moderate heteronormativist, I place the destruction of civilizational heteronormativity as a constitutive feature of gay male culture and of the men who are sexually and ethically socialized within its matrices. Now, again, sexual orientation is morally neutral, and the orientation says nothing about the moral status of the individual. Gay sex and heterosexual sex, as acts in themselves, that is, apart from their wider value applications, are also morally neutral. Sex should be good sex, whether it's gay sex or straight sex. But speaking metaphysically, however, gay sex is a lifelong activity, even if practiced within the register of legal, legalized marriage, has never been the norm historically and will never be the norm. So more importantly, it can and should never be the norm because it abolishes the regenerative principle of biological procreation. And I think that gay relationships erode necessary social ties. Heteronormativity is the normative standard of an objective sexual reality, not because heterosexual sex is intrinsically more pleasurable than gay sex, but because it is the only regenerative means by which norms, mores, values, principles, and therefore a rational civilization are possible. And a civilization is the only social milieu in which any human being can matriculate as human rather than an animal or some social monstrosity. Heteronormativity is the only regenerative means by which mores, norms, values, principles, and therefore rational civilization are possible. I think if civilization were left exclusively in the hands of gay men and heterosexuals were eliminated from the earth, it is not only obvious that the species would die off, that is, putatively obvious. What is less obvious is this, we would live in a state of moral ferality. This is because the evolutionary basis for morality stems from an ethic of care from which the procreative impulse centered on care for the helpless young stems. Now, in a world in which moral imagination need not extend beyond one's sexual pleasure or one's dog to care of one's progeny and theirs as well, one is disincentivized from creating a system of morality that speaks to preserving the species in perpetuity. When one's personal identity and rational self-interest are tied to the protection of one's young and their offspring and one accepts that morality is a code of values that secures and preserves the foundations of human well-being, then one's sexual identity is in some sense undoubtedly a pre-foundational precursor to immoral identity. So the evolutionary basis for morality, I'm saying, stems from an ethic of care from which the procreative impulse centered on care for the helpless young stems. If the moral status of heterosexual sex versus gay sex were to be measured by the moral metric that underlies heteronormativity, then heterosexual sex would be morally superior to gay sex of any kind because once more, once more, it provides the foundational axis along which lies the mores, norms, and civilizational principles that secure the well-being and longevity of human flourishing and agency and the social and moral conditions for an ethos of extended care. The laws (laughs) of heteronormativity are as invariant as the laws of nature. Exclusive homosexuality is, generatively speaking, incapable of producing the evolutionary stratagems from which morality is derived. Still, the moral hypocrisy is obvious. And the the divide between lip service, peter principles and convictions, and how one lives one's life is deep. Now, let's not forget how gay culture deflects self-examination. It is not hyperbolic, I think, to assert that many self-proclaimed white gay progressives, in the spirit of a moral self-righteous occupied stance, have declared war on their white heterosex, heterosexist quote and heteronormative majority. They do so in complete denial or self-willed ignorance of how they're part of a lifestyle pact that configures and demarcates the world in a far more racist manner than any Jim Crow or pre-civil rights era norm could. Many self-proclaimed white progressives are are part, I think, of a lifestyle pact that configures and demarcates the world in a far more racist manner than any Jim Crow norm could. I'm repeating that for emphasis. Steeped in their own racial and ethnic intellects, they sort of luxuriate in a porcine and somnolent deception that allows them to eschew self-examination in favor exposing other people's alleged bigotry. Self-created moral popinjays who have been given a sort of societal papal dispensation. They are past victims of sexual bigotry, or rather they and the past victims of sexual bigotry are sort of transformed into certified moral icons. Now, as progressives who accept their moral culpability and historical oppression, They can redeem themselves in their own eyes. I think the degree of heterosexual guilt, which is fast becoming a reality in the sexual identity politics of the United States, grants gays a recomposed self that expresses itself as gay power, not just gay pride. But this power paradoxically makes it harder to be authentically gay in America today. Because it confers a false sense of invulnerability that hides from gays their sexual anxieties, inferiority, sexual shame, and in spite of the growing trend towards greater tolerance, sexual diminishment, a diminishment that is reflexively denied by most gays who, for psychologically understandable reasons, are fearful of falling back into the cult of victimology. Progressives, on the other hand, have increased their moral leverage by by believing that it is their benevolent capacity for toleration, rather than, say, the work of gay activists that have emancipated gays from political discrimination. But let me say something here. Power eventually always divides by default and intention, or it unites through benign and malevolent coercion. In the case of gay or queer power, it trades on heterosexuals' guilt and grants to gays a sense of unexamined and indiscriminate moral authority over heterosexuals. So the mantra that I think I hear a lot of gays repeating is, I'm so gay, or I'm gay, so I'm beyond critique. And gay power is seemingly benign and without doubt utopianistic. Its holders seem to simply want for all gays the same rights and privileges that regular straight people have. But utopias that are the result of any form of identity politics, racial or sexual, are always tribal. Gays are immunized from the scrutiny of others, and as such, as such, any outside or self-criticism is seen as a form of self-hatred, selling out or engaging in bigotry. Being gay is in one sense more difficult today than it was before this era of marital equality in that it seduces one into suspending a moral narrative about the behaviors of oneself and a significant number of individuals who belong to the gay community. Legal victory has translated into moral self-righteousness. Gays are immunized from the scrutiny of others. And as such, any outside or self-criticism is seen as a form of self-hatred, selling out or engaging in bigotry. But if gay culture is real, as I believe it is, and if any culture's norms, mores, and precepts cannot be immune from self-scrutiny, given human fallibility, then they have to be subjected to rational inquiry. If I describe gay men as moral secessionists regarding traditional marriages, and the hypersexualization and the sexual extremism that will bring about what I predict will not be necessarily a backlash from progressives. Instead, the new ethic of sexual integration that we are experiencing in the United States will expose the radically different nature of gay male sexuality to broad swaths of people will produce what I call integration shock. Integration shock their children will undergo a moral and sexual transformation that will leave them aghast. Now, it does not seem likely that liberal progressives will want to reverse policy out of an atavistic fear of losing their deepest sense of the decorous nature of their sexual mores. But today's progressives will have to contend with a new paradigm shift. We're seeing this with the trans, trans, trans movement their children will undergo a moral and sexual transformation. The sexual imagination of gay men will suffuse their children's sexual imagination as gay sex pervades the mainstream sexual imagination and populate it, not with amazingly new ways of functioning, but will enjoin it to a degree of pure biological carnality that will decouple sex from at least the pretense of love. So what's needed is a new moral contract. But hope cannot be parasitic on chance and happenstance. Gay men who are exhausted by the cult of beauty and superficiality and youth and drugs and sexual ephemerality need to take up a new moral contract. And this moral contract, I believe, will forge a new culture in which a milieu of respect, authentic validation, transcendence, and respect for the views of others who do not believe in the lifestyle of gay people. Validation of oneself and of others, via an appeal to sexual autonomy, will have to take root. Gay men who are exhausted will have to forge this new moral contract. It is unclear what the contract will look like, I think, in its specificities. But I believe that dissenting gay men who want a sustainable social and romantic life and the concomitant culture that will support it will make up the rules as they go along, or some visionary will come up with a contract that will look like something that is forged in the crucibles of respect and reverence. Whatever those rules of engagement are, though, they seem unlikely to be authentic unless we admit that despite the grand acceptance of homosexuality, the psychological trauma of growing up and still living in a world that is run predominantly by heterosexual men is still a painfully deep, painfully deep world to live in. Without claiming to be victims, this open admission of shame, guilt, and pain will allow gays to connect to each other and the world in a way that is healthy, sustainable and deeply loving and I think that this ethos generated by a radical break with the culture as it stands is the only way to foster a love for humanity and create a new world in which we feel at home one we have co-created by suffusing it with an original passionate and authentic assemblage of who we are as moral creatures The Jason Hill Show is a project of the David Horowitz Freedom Center and Front Page Magazine. Unauthorized reproduction of this podcast without express written consent is prohibited.